0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rough Draft. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. Our guest on the pod today is novelist and essayist Viet Tan Nguyen. He is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and its sequel, The Committed. He's also the author of a New York Times best-selling collection of short stories called The Refugees. And let me tell you something, writers. If you manage to write a short story collection and even that becomes a bestseller, you're probably doing something right. He's also the author of a collection of nonfiction essays called Nothing Ever Dies, Uh, a book that deals with memory and war and what it means to be a refugee, which is what Viet was. In fact, those themes are intertwined into a lot of his writings, fiction and nonfiction. Viet himself came to the United States as a refugee in 1975 with his family from Vietnam. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in uh, our conversation with him is about how that experience kind of informed the way that he writes uh, these characters. In fact, there's this moment in one of the short stories, the the one that launches uh, Viet's collection, The Refugees, in which the protagonist, who's this professional ghostwriter, and by the way, herself also a refugee from war-torn Vietnam, talks about her family's arrival in the U.S., and what she says is this, quote, In a country where possessions counted for everything, we had no belongings except our stories. It's really interesting because the line is obviously spoken from a place of desperation, right? It's a a line that indicates scarcity and want, pain, and suffering. But if you talk to Viet about it, what he'll tell you is that stories are in fact our most prized possessions right? Stories define who we are. They're how we make sense of the world and our place in it. Our stories link us to the past. They're the tendons that connect us to those who came before us and and those who are still to come. I mean, if you look at human evolution, storytelling is how we understood who we were in the world. It's how we created our culture and our communities and our religions. Our very sense of self was discovered through storytelling. And so the person who preserves those stories, right, the person who carries stories from place to place, country to country, that person is not an immigrant or a refugee. That person is not just a writer. That person becomes a kind of historian, a kind of prophet. And that's precisely how I see Viet as a writer. He is not just a successful, award-winning novelist. And when I say award-winning, this son of a bitch has won basically every award you can imagine. The Pulitzer, he's got a Guggenheim, he's got a MacArthur Genius Grant. He is a goddamn certified genius, right? But for him, he thinks of himself first and foremost as a storyteller. And there's something, I think, valuable to be learned in that idea for all of us. Because one of the things I always tell my students, particularly my young students who are thinking about maybe becoming writers, is that writing isn't an art. It's a craft. It's a thing that can be learned. It's a thing that you have to practice and rehearse. And you really do have to think of it as a job. In fact, the thing that I probably say most often to my students is, if you don't treat writing like a job, it will never be your job, right? So many writers think that, oh, writing is about letting the muses come to you and inspire the beauty and the art to flow out of you. No, no, writing is sitting down and typing and typing and typing. It's a grind. You know, the guy who works the fries at, at McDonald's doesn't say to himself, you know, in the mornings, does the spirit move me to make fries today? No, it's his job. He punches the clock. He does it. Same thing about being a writer. And I don't know whether it's because I'm an immigrant and Viet's an immigrant and, you know, immigrants... Let's, let's face it, like we work very hard. You know, we know how, how um, tenuous our hold on the things that we have uh, can be. So we work extra hard. But it's a lesson that Viet really comes to again and again and again. He had to watch his parents basically work 14 hours a day in a grocery store. So he understands what work means. And he brings that commitment to work to his writing. It's a very important lesson for us to learn. Along with Viet, we have a special musical guest on this episode of Rough Draft, Tao Nguyen, also from Vietnam, though she was born here in the United States. She is a singer and songwriter and the frontman for the amazing band Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Uh, She performs a song solo for us at the end of the show. You're not going to want to miss that. So without further ado, I present to you our conversation with novelists, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, I should say, and MacArthur genius. Hey, MacArthur people, I, I'm smart too. I mean, call, you know, call me. That's all I'm saying is call me. Anyway, here, without further ado, our conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, Viet Tan Nguyen. Well. First of all, congratulations on your huge success. Thank your you so much. debut novel, uh, New York Times bestseller, basically won every award possible, the Pulitzer, the the uh, Carnegie Medal, uh, they gave you the MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, so basically, I, I want to start with two questions. Uh, first of all, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> I
1: ask myself that every day,
0: I mean, as a matter of fact. What, what is that? Like, I mean, come on. First of all, what I want to know is when you were like writing this this yeah. book i mean did you did you have an idea of like what the response was gonna be? I mean, mm-hmm. did you did you know is what I mean to say?
1: No, I had no clue. You know, as a matter of fact, I had a great time writing the novel, but I gave my agent the first half of the novel and he said, oh, I, I really like it, but you know, the, the narrator is sort of unlikable. <laughs> and my, my reaction mm-hmm. was, well, I like him, <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah. my agent was like, well, I think it's a really good literary book, but we just have no idea if it's gonna sell or not. So you can't connect these two things. And I, I mean, I, I wrote the book because I really wanted to write the book. And I, I had just come off, uh, 11 years of writing a short story collection, which I mm. hated every moment of doing. And partly it was because I was learning how to be a writer, but also because the, those short stories, I was thinking of an audience for them, of other people, right? You know, editors, agents, tastemakers, that kind of thing. The vast, vast short story reading audience uh, absolutely. out there. Yeah. But when you're a Huge short story market. writer, you, Huge care, market. Um, you care about yes, that, right? Yes, it's true. So, But when it came time to writing The Sympathizer, my, re- my, my thought was, well, fuck it. I'm going to write this book for myself. And that was a huge breakthrough for me. So your question of who the fuck do you think you are is absolutely right, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because I I had to just write for myself.
0: What was the moment after the book came out where um, you suddenly kind of became aware that this was going to be a thing? Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. was there one moment where you were like, oh, shit, this is going to be a thing?
1: I got really lucky because the first major review of the book was a front page review uh, in the New York Times book review. Now, that's a thing. That is a thing. For, for most writers, first that, model, that's all they want, right? That's, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, it went on to sell hundreds of copies. So <laughs> yes. it was not a thing in terms of <laughs> making me rich, but it was a <laughs> thing in terms of, of fulfilling this literary ambition <laughs> right. that most writers have. And, right. and it was a good, you know, uh, uh, omen for, for what, what happened to the book.
0: I guess the, the issue here is, you know, like, it's fantastic that you have this enormous success kind of with the, the first shot out. Um, but now you have to do another one, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of anticipation Mm -hmm. for, for this next novel. And I imagine some, I guess basically what I'm asking is, why aren't you home writing?
1: What what are you doing here? That's a very good question. Uh, (laughs) I have a hard time saying no. I mean, this is actually the the most difficult challenge that I have, but I did write 1500 words this morning on the sequel to The Sympathizer. And in fact, one of the key lines in the sequel is, who the fuck do you think you are? No way. Uh, No, absolutely. (laughs) Um, so but it's a legit, se- it's a sequel. It's a real sequel. Okay, It's, it's a, a sequel. real sequel. Did I just you know?
0: break that news? I didn't know no, that. No, 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 it it's been way. out
1: there and I tell people- Can we just say that I broke that news? Yes, you can. Can't. Yeah. I can't believe we broke that news. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't set out to write a sequel. You know, I just thought I was gonna write The Sympathizer mm-hmm. and move on to do something else. But by the time I reached the end, I thought I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I don't think I'm done with this mm-hmm. character and I don't think I'm done with the issues that the book raises. I thought I was done, but there's more to explore
0: after 20 years of writing it or whatever, right? Well, the
1: sympathizer took two years. Two years, two years yes. And this, the writing of the sequel is taking
0: right. a couple of years longer right. than
1: that. You know, it's funny, because you and I actually have
0: um, a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we both won Pulitzers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, no, uh, we're, we both um, came here as, as kids, mm-hmm. right? We, we both, uh, in the 70s, um, we both fled War, violence—in my case,
1: revolution. We both come from countries that Americans are scared of. That's true. Yeah. Very true. Um, we we both settled in San Jose. Right, San Ho. Right. The, that, every time I meet a person from well, San Jose, I, I just get—I I get so excited. Like nobody comes out of San nobody Jose. Nobody comes out of right? San Jose. Yeah. Do you know the way to San Jose? Uh, you God, I grew up with that song. The did you? Way did you? To oh, San
0: Jose? It was like it's one of the worst songs in joy. history. It's, it's a, a shit song.
1: Even in the late '70s, when that song was popular and was playing on PSAs on KNTV 11 in San Jose, yeah, it was always a joke song.
0: Nobody actually took that song seriously except for San Jose. It was right. like it's our pride and joy. Not even not now though. By the way, there yeah. is a difference though. Mm. Um, I went to a shitty public high school, mm-hmm. Del Mar. Go Don's. Um, You went to a preppy Catholic school, Bellarmine. Uh, yes. My real question to you is. You do know what we would say about you guys, right? I think, like, we we know, had,
1: I think we had a good idea. Yeah, you little Catholic boy assholes with your little right. douchey pants and your nice <laughs> shoes. <laughs> I mean... But the thing is, I was not one of those guys. I was the outcast at Bellarmine. I was a refugee nerd Tell at me. Bellarmine. Tell me about that. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, okay, so for people who don't know, Bellarmine, I think, is probably the best high school in the San Jose area. And yeah, it, it literally I don't produces know what that's the, saying, but yes. Yeah, yes. but it, it literally produces the leaders of San Jose. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, okay, you laugh, but the, okay, fine. No, but it, like, that's the, a thing. The that's current mayor thing. of San Jose was my classmate, for example. There you go. Okay? Okay. And so the people who are in power Come out. Of, a lot of them right. come from Bellarmine, right? Yeah. Uh, and Bellarmine at the time, Catholic Prep. Yeah, and at the t- at the time that I went in the 1980s, it was mostly a white high school, and so for people like me to come, it was sort of a a a, a, a change for the school, but also a challenge for us. There were like three Vietnamese guys in right. my entire school but now when i come back there's like a whole vietnamese brotherhood so things have radically changed because as san jose has become more multicultural or as you know the immigrants have risen in prosperity they've infiltrated into Bellarmine because they know this is a place where power uh, gets yeah. brokered power in san jose yeah. happens
0: right there so you you were talking about the fact that it, it was a little bit difficult for you in, in Bellarmine uh, as a refugee kid mm-hmm. as as uh, uh, you know, vietnamese immigrant Talk, talk about your childhood a, mm. a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of that experience was like, uh, fleeing home country, coming here? You, from what I understand, actually spent uh, some time in a refugee camp mm. in Pennsylvania, which th- there are refugee camps in Pennsylvania. Did anybody else know this, that there are refugee camps in Pennsylvania? Are they like refugees from Ohio? What? Who- what what was this camp? I've well, never heard yeah, well, of Well, basically
1: what happened is 130,000 Vietnamese people fled from communism at the fall of Saigon in 1975 and the United States took them in, sort of reluctantly, but they did, you know, they did take us in. And they had to find a place to, yeah, well, so, so, you know, we went through, for example, military bases in Guam, and then we got flown to Mm -hmm. the United States and we got put into one of four refugee camps. And these refugee camps were just basically in American military bases. So the nearest one here is uh, Camp Pendleton. I ended up in the much less glamorous Fort Indiantown gap of Pennsylvania, which no one has heard of. And in order to leave this camp, you had to have a sponsor. So, you know, uh, no sponsor was willing to take all four of us, my parents, my brother and me. So we got broken up. Oh, man. So my parents went to one sponsor. My 10-year-old brother went to one. Four-year-old me went to another. And when you're four years old, you don't have any sense of, yeah. of what is going on. So I remember this as being a very traumatic experience being yeah, separated from my parents. I imagine, yeah. It only lasted, I think, for two or three months. But <laughs> to a four-year-old, yeah, it feels for like forever. Yeah that's, yeah, that's forever. So my, my 10-year-old brother didn't come home for two years. Jesus. You know. And so he tells me, that's how we know mom and dad love you more. <laughs> right, Because yeah. they couldn't stand being yeah, separated clear. from that very long. But don't worry, he went to Harvard. <laughs> he went to Stanford. So the trauma worry, did him God. good. Just yes, fine, yeah. 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 He had something to write about a, and it's called say, it was a essay.
0: perfect personal essay, right? <laughs> um, so then when you guys were finally brought back together as a family, w- w- is that when you ended up in San Jose? Uh,
1: what happened was, you know, my parents were very successful business people in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And they, they, had, they were born as peasants, worked their ways way up, then lost a lot coming to the United States as refugees. They came as refugees. And, of course, well-meaning Americans thought, well, you guys are refugees. Why don't we get you jobs working as custodians uh, at course. the nursing home? Right. And that's not what my parents wanted to do with their lives, right? And they had their best friend moved to San Jose, and she called them up. This is the refugee network. Everybody's you know, <laughs> yeah, trying to figure out where's yeah. the best place to go. And she said, "Hey, the weather's better, <laughs> economy's better." And so my parents, in, in three three years after we moved to Harrisburg, moved to San Jose, and we opened the second Vietnamese grocery store, or they opened the second Vietnamese grocery store in downtown San Jose.
0: Beautiful, shining downtown. Do you San remember Jose. downtown San Jose? In I the 70s remember and downtown 80s? San Jose. I definitely. I remember how it changed because right. we lived there before they had invented the personal computer. Right. So if
1: you go to visit yeah. downtown San Jose now, it looks all nice I know. and glossy right. and everything. Yeah. In the late '70s, early '80s, when my parents were there on East Santa Clara Street, it nobody wanted to be there <laughs> yeah. but Vietnamese refugees. I and I remember this very clearly. Okay, because my parents opened this grocery store, and then I was 10 or 11, walking down Santa Clara Street, and a lot of Vietnamese businesses that have opened in the late '70s and early '80s saw a sign in a store window that said, another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese. And I didn't know the word racism. Right. It stuck with me, though, that sign. You, you, you didn't know what it was called, but you knew it was just fucked up. Like right. you had an
0: idea right. that something is wrong right. about this.
1: I mean, you saw your parents struggling, I assume. I saw my parents struggling, oh, yeah. and then you see the sign. Like, These people, the person who wrote the sign has no idea what the Vietnamese people have gone through, including my parents, to get to this country, And what is happening on East Santa Clara Street in downtown San Jose where my parents got shot Mm. on Christmas Eve in their grocery store. And that's not the only thing that happened, you know, but a whole bunch of stuff. So anyway, if you go to downtown San Jose now and you see the new shiny city hall that's built on East Santa Clara Street, it's literally across the street from my parents' store, which is no longer there. And what happened was the city forced my parents to sell their property so that they could build the new symphony on top of my parents' store, which actually never happened. <laughs> okay, you talk about power is being broken, right, it yeah. never happened. So for years and years, all there was was a parking lot there. And if you go there now, there's a hole in the ground, last time I went, because they're building a gigantic condominium complex on top of where my parents' wow. store once stood. So this is America, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, Refugees come, immigrants right. come, we struggle, we suffer, or my parents did. And then gentri- they gentrified, and then gentrification came on top of them. History is erased. And so this is one of the reasons why we become storytellers, is to tell the stories about the people who were there, even if all the physical traces of them are gone, except for the the traces left in our memory, in our our hearts, our feelings.
0: Yeah, I actually want to talk about this a little bit more later, because so much of your writing has to do precisely with this intersection of story and memory and identity and Mm -hmm. how those things kind of relate to each other. Um, But before we move on, it occurs to me, listening to you talk about this experience, why it is, that you don't want to be called an immigrant, right? Yeah. You insist on being called a refugee. Yeah. I, I call myself an immigrant. I mean, I'm not really a refugee. We didn't have refugee status. Yeah, we were running for our lives. Yeah. um, but we didn't we never sort of saw ourselves in, in that way. But it's a pivotal, foundational part of who you are, yeah. isn't it?
1: Well, you know I think I think a lot of people who even those who are actually technically classified as refugees don't want to be called refugees right. because it's a stigmatizing mm-hmm. term, at least in the United States, right? And for me, I don't know if that ever really crossed my mind as I was growing up. Should I call myself an immigrant? Should I call myself a refugee? Is this a part of a part of your life that, you know, that I lived through? But as I became a writer and I had to think about who I was writing about and, and, and find a very specific word to describe our experience, it couldn't be that we were immigrants, right. You know, we didn't fit that classic immigrant story of p- taking your belongings and moving your family to a new country and hoped, with their hopes with your hopes and aspirations. Like, yeah, and exactly, right. We were running, we, like you, we were running for our lives and we ended up actually being technically classified as refugees. And so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I have to use mm-hmm. this word. I have to use this Claim term. Claim it. Claim it. Yeah. And by claiming it, what, what's happening? You are, I, I'm encouraging other refugees to acknowledge. Who they are, what they have been through, what their history is, and what their connection is to other people who are now arriving as refugees. Because there are a lot of former Vietnamese refugees who are like, "Well, we were the good refugees; mm-hmm, they're the bad These ones. These were the bad ones." Yeah. You know? so don't you get let that them all in. the time. Yeah, you get you know, that all the time. Get it all the time. Like, and it's a very well, you know, we we came we came right. the right way. Right, and it's a very American thing. Stephen Miller, his ancestors were Jewish refugees or immigrants. Yeah, fuck that guy. But there's a lot of them in the Trump administration, but there's a lot of them in America, too right and so it's a very american thing it's not just a vietnamese thing but for me it's a very vietnamese thing because i know these vietnamese refugees i know them intimately i grew up with them (laughs) in san jose of the 1970s and 1980s and let me tell you something there were a lot of bad vietnamese refugees (laughs) we did a lot of (laughs) terrible things you know we know how to break the law for our own benefit (laughs) okay so that's a part of the american experience too all that goes into my fiction but into american storytelling we don't just tell stories about how we're angels you know, immigrants and refugees are not angels. We, we do some good stuff. We raise our families, but we also do some terrible things to each other Yeah, as well. And that's a part of what we have to so say. So
0: at what point in this um, childhood, you know, this kind of the trials and the tribulations and the trauma and the and sort of surviving and making it and dealing with your uh, sense of identity and this, this notion of what a refugee actually means and how that defines who you are and how you see the world, at what point did you say to yourself that, I want to be a writer like how how did that happen?
1: uh well, like most writers, I was a lonely kid but yeah. <laughs> not, not just by the fact that I'm socially awkward or whatever, but also by being a refugee mm-hmm. uh, becoming fluent in English, okay, loving to read in English. tell me about that, tell me how you got because my my experience of being
0: getting fluent in English was weird we okay. uh we were um all four of us, my mom, my dad, and my sister, were living in a in a in like a one-room uh, motel, mm-hmm. basically. And my parents uh, told the manager, because they couldn't afford four people, they, they, they told the manager that they were the only two in the room, <laughs> and so during the daylight hours, while the manager was on site, my sister and I weren't allowed to, to leave the room. At night, we'd go <laughs> swimming and we'd hang out and stuff, but during the day, we'd stay in the room and watch nonstop TV, right. which, I don't know what Vietnam was like but there was no such thing as like 24 hour television mm-hmm. in Iran. I mean we had TV it was like three channels it was mm-hmm. shit it was like 6 hours a day. Instead
1: of Hogan's Heroes it was yeah it was like shit. The, the great stuff. Yeah.
0: I mean chips was like mind blowing to me. I mean I was like is this what it's like to drive on a highway mm-hmm. in California? Mm-hmm. Like cars just flip mm-hmm. over for mm-hmm. no reason mm-hmm. all the time? Mm-hmm. Like why are there ramps mm-hmm. everywhere? That cars just kind of, you know, like... That was a really
1: 1980s of. thing, by the way. Cars the 1980s, flying off of cars ramps. Cars just flying yeah, off ramps right. happened all the right.
0: time in the 80s. Um, and it... Six months. It right. took basically six months of television right. for me right. to be fluent. What, what was your experience like?
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing is I don't remember becoming fluent in English. I just remember from my, from my earliest memories probably when I was five, six, or seven that I already could speak English. I went to kindergarten. I didn't have any problems as far as I can remember. And one of my earliest, fondest memories is the public library in Harrisburg, which my parents would take me to. Now, they only took me there for me, not for them. But I knew how to read. How did I learn? I don't have any memory of learning how to read. My parents didn't teach me. It might have just happened. I might have had great teachers. But by the time I got to San Jose, my parents are working 12 to 14 hour days every day of the week. My only recourse was to read and to go to the library and so that in, in that gave me a love of stories tell me about those books what were you uh reading? well you know i remember like reading curious george for example and then i remember reading tintin comics I had early love for Tintin Comics, which I'm passing on to my son, except for the fact that now I read Tintin Comics They're like, they're kind of racist. Super, super <laughs> racist. They go from being <laughs> yeah. super explicitly racist to sort of liberal racism, so to sort of right. gentle white man right. superiority nice, racism. Yeah, exactly. okay? But they're still really racism. good stories. Yeah. They're still really good stories. But the interesting thing, obviously, is the, this is a very common experience for those of us who are immigrants or refugees and become writers. The more we become writers and readers, the more we get separated from our parents who don't share the language that's right so it's a very painful experience at the same time that you can't I couldn't share this love that I had with my parents and so the love that I had for literature substituted for the love that I was not that I felt that I wasn't getting from mm-hmm. my parents of course I was getting love from my parents they were like feeding me clothing me sacrificing themselves for me Working their but I wasn't off. the Brady yeah. Bunch right okay so that was where I began to want to be a writer in the third grade. I wrote a book, drew the pictures, you know, wrote the words, bound the book, won a prize from the library.
0: What the fuck is yeah. So every time you write something they give you a prize? In the is third grade, that what
1: happens? They had good taste. Fuck. They man. saw the talent early on. As a matter of fact, that epic was called Leroy the Lester the Cat, Lester the Cat, about a a, a really exhausted urban cat who flees to the countryside to find love.
0: <laughs> that's a beautiful story. Thank you. Uh, you I like, get <laughs> yeah. that, like, revive it's, it's that It's available. Okay.
1: Um, do you remember the
0: first time you actually broke the news to your parents? That, that like, I was going to be a writer? That you wanted to be a writer? Oh, God. Or did I don't you think just that, not?
1: That, that was never officially stated. Yeah, that's a smart you, move. You're sort of just segue into yeah, it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like eventually they'll know.
1: Right. I mean, so for example, like uh my my brother who who became a doctor of course uh, made my life better because he became the yeah no no, yeah he's a great guy but but you know so he became a doctor and so that helped to clear the way for me like maybe they didn't need two doctors so he said he said to me when i went to college just take pre-med tell mom and dad you're going to be a doctor but do whatever you want on the side this is a classic Vietnamese way of dealing with parental conflict yeah just fake them out and so uh i did that for 11 weeks and i just i just gave up i "I can't even do pre-med i can't even (laughs) fake this And I became an English major, but I told my parents, I'm gonna become a lawyer. And so that held them off for four years. That's a real job. That's a real job. Yeah. And then when it came time to go to grad school, I said, okay, mom and dad, I'm gonna become a doctor. And they said, really? And I said, a doctor of English. And they said, oh, okay, that's not quite what we were looking for. So my my parents were actually relatively liberal in this regard. They said, okay, go get get your doctorate, but you gotta get a job. So that was always in the back of my mind. Got to get a job. Got to get a yeah. job. So in you know, my, my my dad was like, "Your brother finished his doctorate in four years. How long is it going to take you?" <laughs> I finished <it> in five. <laughs> so when I got a job as a professor, they were that held them off. Yeah. But that was enough. Like I wasn't going to tell them. On top of that, I really want to be a writer. Like a professor is just my day job. Yeah, keep that, that, that on the that, DL. That never exactly. So I think the first t- first time I ever told my parents was like I one of my stories short stories was translated into Vietnamese. Wow. And. Uh, They read it in Vietnamese? Well, so I went home and I gave it to my parents and I said, hey, this is actually in Vietnamese. Now you can actually read something I wrote. My parents are devout Catholics, super devout. This story was about a young Vietnamese refugee who comes to San Francisco in 1975 and discovers he's gay. They never mentioned that story to me again. They (laughs) They
0: just pretend the Vietnamese way. Just pretend it it doesn't happen. It's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious how much, you know, because I, I, I read The Sympathizer, I read, you know, the, the stories in, in uh, Refugees, and, and I, I wonder how much of these experiences that you have make their way into your stories. How much of it is autobiographical? I guess this is what I'm trying to say. Have you ever actually fucked a squid is what I'm trying to say here.
2: Hmm... For I people
0: who it. don't know who, what I'm talking about here, obviously the, the protagonist of The Sympathizer quite
1: famously fucks a squid. Right. Um,
0: it's not. I'm not rich, giving anything rich. away. Did I
1: just give away the ending? It's not to everybody's no, taste. Apparently everybody's 1% it. of readers has absolutely refused. Judging from my Amazon.com and Goodread reviews, I, they absolutely refused. Like, they is, got to the disgusting. squid fucking
0: and they were like, yeah, you know no, uh, This is not uh, for that's me. It. It,
1: yeah. I respect that. It's not for everybody's taste, obviously. But no, I have not literally, in the Clintonian sense... Uh, fuck the squid. This story just got way better than I thought it was going to. But I but but my body parts have been inside a squid, yes. I'll just leave it at that. No, I just there's no way you're gonna leave it at that. Like give me more. Give well you me know, okay, more. so I as as a kid, uh I don't know if you ever read Philip uh Roth's Portnoy's Complaint. Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I read it as a precocious and kid. By the way, I even
0: recognized it as a Roth illusion.
1: Oh good. See? So that's how
0: much of a nerd I am. Yes.
1: Um we're brothers in that sense, <laughs> but I remember reading Portnoy's Complaint, probably 12 or 13, and the only thing I remember for decades and decades was the moment when Portnoy, in that novel, uh, is he's 13 or 14, he's super horny, and he just he's he's masturbating with everything, including the slab of liver in his family refrigerator, which he masturbates into and then puts back into the fridge for <laughs> dinner later that night. Okay, so that always stayed with me. But I didn't intend to actually put that into the sympathizer. It just happened to be that I finished writing one day and then I had to prepare dinner and the menu was squid, which I had never cooked before. I did not not know what you did with squid, but in order to make squid, you have to clean the squid. You have to put your fingers inside the squid. And at that point... I thought, wait a minute, Things this are, yeah, it's coming, it's coming through now. Yeah. Uh huh. This seems familiar. <laughs> and uh, then, th- 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 this writers have to find the material yeah, wherever yeah. they can. What are you do? Wrote about it the next day. Uh, what I love, by
0: the way, the, 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 my favorite part about that story in The Sympathizer is that he then,
1: like, cooks it and eats it. Like, I mean, who's going to, like, waste a perfectly good squid? Well, he, he does it. He's very poor. His family is very poor. He only has his mother. His mother, this is a very special event for them to have squid. They're in a landlocked village. And so when his mother ha- obviously has no idea what her son has done with the squid, and so she lovingly makes the stuffed squid, he voluntarily eats his own squid to prevent his mother from having to obviously that is a good son yes a very (laughs) good very good very filial
0: Um, let's move on i want to talk about uh craft for a minute here uh there's a lot i mean i I love your writing there's Mm. so much about it that i that i love i love um the fact that at the same time i can tell that you have an enormous amount of focus at the sentence level right um one of my sort of go-to lines about writing is that writing happens at the level of the sentence, Mm -hmm. right? Writing is putting sentences together. Mm -hmm. So if you can't command your sentences, you're not a writer. But what I love about your writing and your sentences is how effortless it looks, right? There's this kind of old saying that sometimes people use, I personally don't agree with it, but this notion that, you know, your sentences shouldn't draw attention to themselves, mm-hmm. right? Um, tell me about that. Tell me about your, the experience mm-hmm. of, of sentence construction right. for you. What's that
1: like? Well, I mean, whether or not sentences draw attention to themselves is a very subjective matter, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, but basically when I wrote- this I like thing, my sentences to shout. I want them to right. be like, Fucking fireworks. Okay, so basically, like, what? I mean, the, the <laughs> distinction would be between like Hemingway and Nabokov. Is it Nabokov. Right. Nabokov. I never had know, know how to say his name, but depends on how know, cool you are. Like the the acolytes of Hemingway, and there are a lot of them in the United States. You know, there's a whole generation of creative writing professors grew up reading Hemingway, for I example. Mean, every
0: creative writing department is just right. basically teaching Hemingway, right. yeah.
1: And, and so it's a religion, no adjectives, you <laughs> right. know, or whatever. Yeah, no and, adverbs. Yeah, and that worked in 1925, well, yeah. mm-hmm. but it's no longer 1925. It's, it's not a universal condition, right? It's a Style is a relative matter. And when I wrote The Sympathizer, I thought, I'm not Hemingway, obviously. And actually, you know, the style of, your, of my book Whatever the book is, has to express the character who is whoever is telling the story. Absolutely, right? voice and, we say voice voice. Yeah. And uh, this narrator of the sympathizer as we would find out eventually, I didn't even know this when I was writing the book, but eventually I did. You know, he's writing under conditions of great duress. He's in a re-education camp writing a confession. And he's also a guy who's intensely literary as well. So I had to find the right voice for him. Mm-hmm. And the way I found the voice was ironically by reading another book. I, I, book. I, was, I was struggling to find the voice for The Sympathizer when I read a review in the LA Times of a new translation of a Portuguese novel that had come out in 1976 called The Land at the End of the World by Antonio <gasps> Lobo Antonio Antunes. Lobo
0: Antunes. But you know
1: him! I'd like damn. it even better because ninety-nine percent of Americans have ninety-nine point nine percent of people I mentioned have no idea who he is. Genius, right? A
0: Portuguese writer, perennial right. Nobel uh, right. Prize like runner-up, right? Runner up. right. Uh, yeah, explanation if, of the birds changed right. my life. I if mean, you
1: mention his name in European literary circles, people at least know his name. In the United States, nobody has any idea who this guy is. People go
0: out and read the works of Antonio Lobo Antunes, right? And he
1: has a marvelous translator, as, at least for the land at the end yeah. of the world, Margaret Ho Costa, who's a really brilliant translator of Spanish and Portuguese so the land at the end of the world is an autobiographical novel about a young Portuguese medic who gets drafted to go f- uh, to the war in Angola which is Portuguese mm. uh, the Portuguese colony and it's basically like their version of the Vietnam War it's a horrible thing but that's not the reason why I was attracted the reason why was because the style of the novel is is incredible and yeah. it's a style that most Americans can't stand to read because it's not Hemingway it's complete opposite right. it's <laughs> dense it's energistic'
0: like, 400 word sentences right. where you've like you've lost right track of like where the sentence right. actually begins and you don't
1: care right. and american readers have a fetish with 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 like you you used to, have to be able to pick up a book and read it in like five hours <laughs> right, yeah. Americans are lazy, reading are lazy, reading they right. say yeah, it's like it's like a it's like a McDonald's version of literature, <laughs> which is fine. It's fine. I love that too. but the fact that you can't do anything else is deeply problematic. Right. So for me, the land at the end of the world was like drinking an espresso shot with every single page. Mm. You cannot do three hundred espresso shots. I did two a day. but I, when I read, I, read I, I I just was so energized by his prose, and so I thought. That enabled me to write The Sympathizer in a way that I was aspiring to be like Lobo Antunas, which I failed in doing. But to me, his sentences were always very clear. Uh, it's just that they were so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I had to stop after like two or three. Yeah, catch your breath. Just to catch yeah. my breath, just to admire what he did with the images. That's what I wanted to do yeah. with The Sympathizer. So there's clarity. And the other reason was I wanted, I, I, I wanted to write sentences that I wanted to read. And I wanted the sentences to 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 carry me from one sentence to the next, just with the rhythm of the of the prose, with with the images, with the ideas in the sentence. right? So when you read Lobo and Tunis, you, you, you I just have to stop to admire the beauty of the images and the intellect that goes into making them. Now it does, that doesn't work for every book. It worked for the sympathizer, but that was the effort that I was trying right. to put into it. And I was looking for readers who would be like me. Now, there are a lot of readers who can't stand the sympathizer. It's fine, it's fine, you know? <laughs> yeah. But there, there, there are readers who love the sympathizer. That's who I'm writing for. The other thing that I really love about the way that you deal with
0: craft is that, um, you know, you don't bullshit about the fact that uh, writing is a grind. It's a grind, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's a, it's a job. Mm-hmm. In fact, probably the thing that I say most to my students is that if you don't treat writing like a job, it'll never be your job, mm-hmm. right? I think so many young writers think that writing is an art, mm-hmm. right? There's a reason why we call it a craft, mm-hmm. right? It's it, the, I think I, so often I hear people say things like, you know, um, you know, I'm 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 waiting for the spirit to move me, mm-hmm. you know, so that I can write. Mm-hmm. It's like that's not how this works. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to do this for a living? Mm-hmm. Then you have to treat it. There's no accountant. Right. who's like, I'm waiting for the spirit to move me right. before I can do your taxes. Right. You well, know? Here's like, a better, I need the
1: muses, you know. Here's a, here's a different way of thinking about it. Uh, it's athlete, athletes. It's not like athletes just go out there and they play pro ball. Yeah. Like two, day, two so hours out they of they the week. Like it, yeah, they're they're like, they feel like I feel it. they feel like this right. is the time. Right. They're doing like eight hours a day, sweating, yeah. grunting. It's not fun. I mean, it could be fun, but I mean, it's work. It's work. It's work in order to get to that beautiful moment when you can score that basket or or whatever it is. And I think the same thing for writing, Uh, at least for me, you know, I really did, I think, put in 10,000 hours of very unglamorous sitting in a room trying to figure out how to write a sentence before I could get to the moment where I could write The Sympathizer in two years. And almost every moment felt like joy, except for the moment when I had to think about publishing the book, (laughs) you know, but the actual uh, moment of the art was amazing. But you sacrificed to get to that point.
0: You know speaking of the sympathizer you you refer to it as political satire mm. and i'd love for you to just kind of you know explain what you mean by that like how how do you understand it as a work of political satire, and how does it fit in sort of this kind of long tradition of satirical works, particularly yeah. works that have to do with war.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there are satirists in American literature, right. <laughs> and I don't like most of them because they're not very interesting because they're not political. They're just, right. I read them like, oh, you know, yeah, of sort of kind of, it's kind of funny, but things that are really funny are things that are political because they dig down deep into contradictions in ourselves or in our culture that we don't want to confront. Right, and war is one of those contradictions. Americans think they're they're freedom-loving people, and yet we're going out there, pretty much invading countries every single decade. We're bringing them freedom, dude. Right? Yeah. That's like how we do it. Yeah. So it's our version of newspeak. So how do you get at that? Um, so one of the books that I I always loved a lot was like Catch 22. I read it three or four times. Hilarious, and I thought I could never write Catch 22. I'm not that funny. But I'm going to try. You know, because I think. I'm gonna write this very serious novel about some terrible things that happened in Vietnam involving Vietnamese and Americans and so on. And it's gonna be 400 pages and it's gonna be really not a pleasant experience if it's all serious all the time. And I've read enough you know, political satires like Catch 22 or Journey to the End of the Night mm. by Louis Ferdinand Céline, which is another big influence from the early 20s in France. Uh, and I thought uh, uh, these books are, are both very serious, but also very funny. Because what are they doing? They're taking up universal uh, problems of absurdity and, and hypocrisy. You know, Americans are not unique in saying one thing and doing another. The French did it as well. Every, every country does it. I know, but we perfected it. We perfected it. Like, right.
0: We're So it's, it's like that's yeah. what American exceptionalism is
1: truly about. I th- one of the things that political satire does, though, is that it forces us to to see things that we take for for granted that we think of as normal and see them from the outside. So for Americans, it's normal that we live in a military industrial complex, that we spend tons of money on like missiles. So it's, it's, it's normal that when we have a political problem in another country, we'll fire Tomahawk missiles into that country, <laughs> each one of which costs more than the budget of the National Endowment for the Humanities <laughs> or the Arts, whatever. That's stupid, yeah. but we take it for granted. Political satire shows it to us, right? right? And I think for me as a refugee, from Vietnam, I never felt completely American, even though my, my English is perfect. I never felt completely American. So that helped made it easier for me to be a political satirist, because I always was looking at things from the outside, even mm. when Obama got elected, okay? I was at Harvard when Obama uh, did the inaugura- had his inauguration, and it was like a holy event at Harvard yeah. okay I was in a room full of intellectuals white people uh, mostly mm-hmm. yes were like oh. racism is over right it was, it was it, these they were so moved and they were so patriotic everybody stood up at yeah. the national anthem or this whatever and I and I was sitting at a table and three of us didn't stand up one guy was Mexican one guy was German and the other one was me <laughs> yeah. you know because I was like I can sort of see where this is going mm-hmm. I, I I'm Thrilled we elected President Obama for all the obvious reasons. But I'm sort of kind of skeptical and suspicious about what's going to happen, given what I know about American politics. Right? And it sort of happened. Or
0: even more, even what you know about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I I say this all the time, you know, with this kind of the Trump years that we're in now, you know, a lot of things, one thing that you hear a lot uh, from sober-minded people is that Well, this is just a blip that America is permanent, that our political foundations will prevail, that it doesn't matter, you know, who's uh, in the White House, that ultimately, you know, the the, the pillars of our democracy are permanent. Have you ever heard an immigrant say that phrase? (laughs) No, like, you know, no immigrant ever says that phrase because we all know it changes like that. Right,
1: right. Do you have an escape hatch? I mean, do you have a plan?
0: <laughs> okay, I actually kind of do. This is I'm glad that you brought this up, but like my wife and I are preparing for what we just referred to sort of quietly as the zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So we have our own chickens now in mm-hmm. our own garden. We have our own bees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're ready. We're yeah. ready to go.
1: I think that's a, I don't know if that's an immigrant mentality, but it's certainly a refugee mentality. <laughs> like you saw your country go to shit. You don't take nothing nothing for granted. You know you know power can be abused. And countries are not unique. Every country has a high-minded set of ideals, and every country has the potential to betray them because every country is built on a contradiction. Okay, so you know the fact that Trump is now our president was shocking to a lot of people, and shocking to me. But in one way, but not a surprise. In another way, because how do we go from Obama in one cycle to Trump in another? Trump didn't come out of nowhere. He came out of the American sewer or whatever you want to call it. You know, so these these two representatives represent two aspects of the American contradiction, yeah. and they are not going away, right? And so optimistically, we work to change our society, but pessimistically, I have an escape hatch.
2: <laughs> I hope I have
1: one. Tell me about your escape hatch just so we, we can, just in case, We're not that, I, 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 we don't live that
0: far from each well, other. I want to make sure, do I need of, to come to your okay. house?
1: So it's kind of ironic that my escape hatch cannot be Vietnam. <laughs> my books are banned <laughs> in Vietnam no or censored anyway, oh, like wow. soft, soft banning, okay? Cause, uh, so I was talking to Walter Mosey last night, and he was like, oh yeah, my, my book is available in Vietnamese. And I saw Colson Whitehead, who won the Pulitzer, his book got translated into Vietnamese. I'm like, my book is not translated into Vietnamese <laughs> because the government won't allow it to be published. Yeah. I'm actually okay with the Vietnamese pirating my works, because that's what I always expected. You know, I, I thought it would be a, a badge of honor to be pirated in Vietnam, but that's better than getting censored. Okay? Right. So basically, I can't go back to Vietnam. Right. So where can I go? Well, uh, I've spent a few summers in of France now, I'm taking adult French classes. My six year old right. boy is in a French school. <laughs> so my escape hatch is to go back to my other colonizer. Uh, right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so this is how history fucks us, you know, because like, uh, <laughs> France, is, France has a lot of its own problems, yeah. but the Vietnamese got it good in France,
2: yeah.
1: you know, uh, because of very particular historical colonial conditions. And the French like to think they're better than the Americans. Right? So they're perfectly, I'm hoping, happy to take a refugee from the United States. We'll see about
0: that. Yeah. Hey there everyone, it's Reza, I'm sorry for the interruption, I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode, well then, you're in luck my friends, because Rough Draft is also a TV show, and you can watch it all right now along with Topic's other original series and exclusive programming from around the world. You can check it out for free on the Apple TV app, which is already on your favorite devices. With Apple TV, you can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing. And you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. In your book uh, *Nothing Ever Dies*, which is basically like a, uh, an extended, you know, essay, you say something that just I think really caught my attention. You say all wars are fought twice: the first time on the battlefield, and the second time in memory.
1: I am so proud of that sentence. By it's the way, it's a good sentence. Yes.
0: It's a good. You worked on that for a <laughs> while, right? Um, is that is that? how you understand stories is that what the function of stories are to kind of maintain this link to the past is it is it part of our memory in fact i mean you know i mean is i guess what i'm trying to say is do you see yourself as a storyteller as somebody who's doing more than just providing you know a narrative but somebody who is truly kind of linking the past to the present
1: well, yeah, and it, l- it goes to this idea I, or fantasy I have of myself as as being a political writer, you know, mm-hmm. and to be a political writer in the United States is kind of rare, uh, I think, because, you know, in the United States, yeah, we are sort of, true, yeah. uh, Americans on the average are sort of hostile to the idea of politics in their arts. They associate that with communism or socialism <laughs> and not as terrible <laughs> right. to have in the United States. Um, but for me, I was always drawn to Literature that was obviously about great stories, but about great stories that were connected to real social issues. This was the only way I could justify to myself mm-hmm. my love for literature. Because I would, I would read a book, I'd have a great time, and then I'd, I'd, I'd have to go outside of my bedroom, and my, my parents were there. <laughs> it's was like, how do I, I just, I, I couldn't be an art for art's sake kind of person right. with parents who were working 12 to 14 hours a day and getting shot in their store. Okay. So for me, it was crucial. It had to matter. It had to matter. Yeah. And then I was growing up in a Vietnamese refugee community for whom the war had never ended. And I was growing up in the seventies and eighties in, in America and the war had never ended, the Vietnam War. If you went to the movie, the the Cinemaplexes, what were you watching? You were were watching Apocalypse Now, you're watching Platoon, you're watching Rambo. Americans were still fighting their war 10 to 15 years later, and in fact, they're still fighting the war now because Michael Mann is making a movie about the Battle of Hue. Spike Lee is making a movie about Vietnam. We can't let it go. You can't let it go. can't let it go. So from my own personal experience, this is totally true. We fight the war. The war takes five or 10 years. Now it's taking 20 years or more. But regardless, we will keep fighting this war Mm -hmm. in the aftermath as we try to make sense of it. Now, this is really crucial because I, as a professional storyteller, you as a professional storyteller, we know the importance of stories. We write stories. But in fact, for everybody, stories matter. Trump is a great storyteller. I hate his story, but he's got a good one because right. he seduced a whole bunch of people with it yeah and the the stories we tell about war are a part of that his basic story is we good they bad okay so that's his <laughs> the diction. Oldest story that's his diction, yeah. right uh and that's how we mobilize people to fight wars and that's how we mobilize people to stand up and pledge allegiance and all that other kind of stuff so this is how we fight wars over and over again so my i feel that my my purpose as a storyteller is to try to make an intervention there But I wonder, I mean, I don't want to
0: mangle a a metaphor here, but are we bringing a pen to a knife fight? I mean, I I feel like, you know, you look at sort of sentiment in the the United States about refugees, uh, particularly in in those um, groups like white evangelicals uh, for whom, you know, it's kind of a commandment to -hmm. to actually care for the widow and the Mm -hmm. orphan and Mm -hmm. the suffering. And yet, seven out of ten white evangelicals, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, make up 100 million of us, Mm -hmm. say that we should close our doors to all refugees. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe I'm just, maybe it's the the booze, maybe I'm just feeling pessimistic, but like, how does a storyteller combat that?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so (laughs) I wrestle with that probably literally every day in my life, you know, because I love stories. I love literature. I love art. I think these things really matter and, I, and, and they do. All right? And we need people to do these things because they sustain us as a yeah. culture. But certainly for those of us who are actually practitioners and those of us who love the arts, we need them. OK, and then we have to balance that with this other reality that you're talking about, which is these other people who are determining policies that are devastating lives, whether it's, you know, you know uh, refugee policy or these concentration camps on the borders and so on and so on. I and mean, when you're faced with that reality as, an, as a writer, an artist, storyteller, whatever, I think you, we, it's perfectly logical to have this feeling, well, what, what, what I do doesn't matter. I need to go out there on the streets. I need to organize and so on and so forth and we do but for those of us who really believe in the arts what we're torn yeah. and i my my personal feeling for this is i'm i'm a i'm a pretty good writer i can make a difference there more than i could if i was devoting my life only to organizing or, or politics, activism or, or politics yeah. people keep telling me oh maybe you should run for office cuz why do people do that all the time well because you i look good in a suit and i can make a damn suit. yeah by i i i yeah. objectively look good in a suit okay <laughs> and i can give a good speech and i can say the right things so in a really fucked up world i can become a politician i don't want to do that yeah okay i so we all make our own choices and we all make our own compromises all those people who are politicians, they think they're making a difference and look at the Republican Party, but fuck, they're not doing anything. They, they're elected, they, they have power and they're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a relative situation. Yes, the people who have the levers of power can do more than a novelist or a poet. But for those of us who are novelists and poets and storytellers, we have our eye on other pressing human yeah. issues. And in the future, in the future, people aren't going to remember 99.9% of politicians they're not going to remember 99.9% of artists either frankly but, but the, the, the stories ones will But last. the stories will survive and yeah. the ones that survive people will remember that and the years ones that will transform yeah. Yeah. yeah and so that's i mean it's it's cold comfort to the people who are in concentration camps or the people who can't get into this country and i can't do anything about that but i have to believe that the stories still matter the stories can make a difference Yes, we have these people who are who are not following the Bible and it's like, oh, let's not help the stranger and the refugee and the foreigner and so on. But we can also point at other circumstances where in fact, I mean, the, the American consciousness has moved for a certain percentage of mm-hmm. people. Things are not the same as they were in the 1950s or, or 1960s, which is not to deny the terrible things that are happening now, but it's to acknowledge that in fact, our story has changed, yeah. that there are more people who believe in different kinds of stories. There are more white people who recognize that whiteness is is a problematic thing. Mm. This would not have existed 50 or 60 years ago to the same degree that it does now. And it has changed because of political activism, but it has also changed because of storytellers. Yeah.
0: Um, There's one thing that I heard about you a while ago, and I'm not sure if this is true, so I'm I'm gonna just ask you this. Uh, I heard that you uh, are quite adamant about the fact that you're not writing for a white audience. Uh, that which, by the way, I'm sure like just pleased the shit out of your publisher. Yeah. Um, you're like this isn't for white people. It's fine, <laughs> um, but that your sort of the, the imaginary audience that you that you envision that all writers have kind of in the back of their minds. Like who are you writing for? That in your case, you actually think that that audience.
1: It's Vietnamese. Well, no, it's worse than that. The audience is me. The one <laughs> okay. Vietnamese person, me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm serious. When I wrote The Sympathizer. I mean, the way I wrote it was to say, I'm writing it for me. Because if I wrote it for Vietnamese people, it would actually be a very different book. Mm. Because Vietnamese people don't necessarily have good literary taste. Okay? And Vietnamese people, like every other people, a lot of people want the stories to flatter them in some way. They want the stories to affirm their own worldview mm. in some way. So I'm Vietnamese, yes, and I want to speak to Vietnamese people and I want to tell Vietnamese stories, but I recognize that I don't agree with a lot of Vietnamese people. Like a lot of Vietnamese Americans will not read The Sympathizer because it's written from the perspective of a communist oh, spy. Right. And they're like, we don't, have, we don't want anything to deal with, to, with communism. But that's not my problem. Okay. My problem, my, my challenge is to write a story that I care about and to write it in a way that other Vietnamese people who are willing to read the book will care about too. So my next audience is Vietnamese people, and I think this is very important. And, you know, Toni Morrison died not long ago, and one of the greatest lessons that Toni Morrison uh, has left for 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 us uh, who are writers is her utter, absolute conviction that you can write for your own people, whoever that is, and let everybody else come along. Hmm. That you don't have to write to the people in power you don't have to write to the majority you don't have to write to white people however you define the people in power you don't have to write to them it's a greater challenge maybe to write for your own population especially if they're not in power however you define that but truth beauty universality comes out of that that's beautiful yeah. you know and the when people come up to me, Vietnamese people, for example, and they're crying, it happens sometimes. And the, you know, we we never heard our story, or I didn't ever wanted to think about this issue, and now you have talked about it. That is enormously important to me because I didn't have that opportunity when I was growing up. I was reading Tin Tin, Okay, <laughs> I didn't have that opportunity. Right. And so, this is where storytelling yeah. can make a difference because n- hopefully now you know there's going to be a whole another generation. Of Vietnamese American uh, storytellers, and they're going to write a whole bunch of stories that I have no understanding mm-hmm. of, and that's good. Right. That's good. I I'm dealing with my own issues. I'm dealing with my past, my trauma, my war. I don't expect the next generation to deal with this kind of stuff. I want them to be able to deal with something else because I dealt with this, and I hopefully you know I was able to clear some 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 issues out of the way, so they can go off and do something radically different.
0: You had said earlier that that the the work is uh, banned in Vietnam, but. Um, have you been back to Vietnam? I mean, have you have you heard from anyone in Vietnam who has read the book? I mean, ha, what, what's has there been any response that you can track?
1: Oh, the last time I was in Vietnam was 2014, uh, and uh, I haven't. I, and then the novel came out in 2015, The Sympathizer, and I haven't been back because I'm, you yeah, right. know, I would like an invitation from the Vietnamese government <laughs> to say, hey, we're not going right. to like turn you back at the border or you know detain yeah. you in some way. But the interesting thing is that I've uh, in my travels throughout the United States to college campuses, for example. I've met quite a few Vietnamese foreign students Mm. who come to my events. They're obviously enthusiastic, otherwise they wouldn't come. And and for them, they tell me, everybody is reading your book in Vietnam. It's obviously a relative term. But in other words, there is a population in Vietnam that has been able to find the book um, in English. They're obviously of a certain class or background to be able to read it in English. And for them, what what I'm being told is, this story is not available. This kind mm-hmm. of story that I'm telling has not been told in Vietnam because the only version of the past is a state sponsored version, which is even more problematic than the American version of the past. So there's a hunger right. for a, a, a different, hopefully more truthful, or at least more complex version of the past in Vietnam that the sympathizer is helping to fulfill. So
0: this is fascinating to me. So, not that long ago, I saw this uh, really fascinating. Um, short documentary called Nobody Dies. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a documentary in which uh, an amazing musician named Mm -hmm. Tao Nguyen uh, from Tao and the Get Down, Stay Mm -hmm. Down uh, goes back with her mom Mm -hmm. to Vietnam. Uh, She does a performance there and it's sort of this amazing experience about um, that that notion of going back, like what, what, what it means to sort of connect as an artist to roots that you may or may not actually have any deep connection to, um, and here's the good news, she's actually oh, here. Oh, really? That's right. Amazing. So without further ado, let's bring up Tao oh, Nguyen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, come on Tao. You. All right. Tao, oh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having
2: me. Um,
0: as I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, I've been obsessed with you for a long time. I know Viet's been obsessed with mm-hmm. you for a long time. Um, you know, I saw this documentary that you made in which you and your band went back to Vietnam with your mom and I, I don't know. It just it moved me so much. I think it's probably because I also have like a kind of, you know, a foreign mom. And so I know what that experience is like. Um, but the, what I I wanted you to kind of join this conversation because, first and foremost, I know you were born in the States. But, mm-hmm. you know, you come from immigrant parents. I, I'm Refugee
2: curious. parents. Refugee
0: parents. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, how much of this sort of conversation that we've been having, how much of it rings true to you?
3: I mean, it it rings so true. I don't know if i I hope that my Jesus, like tears welling up in my eyes <laughs> are showing up on camera. But I, um, so much of it. I, and you know, I, I have to credit Piet, and I, I'm sure he hears this all the time. I know he does, but his writing has helped open discussions, external discussions, and just internal discussions mm. um, around identity, around place. Um, and I grew up in Virginia. And uh, it, there was such an emphasis on assimilation. And there was such a silence, this just diligent, industrious mm. silence that, uh, that you just become really accustomed to. And, and you may never develop any uh, facility for language around that. And, and I really think Viet's work has helped so many people like myself engage sort of try to talk to our families mm-hmm. more understand what we're doing and what kind of what kind of shortchanging has taken place um, uh, I'm curious you,
0: what, what what did assimilation mean to you back then like what did you <laughs> understand it to mean
3: it meant that you had uh, it meant that you were obviously different, but had to act as same as possible, mm. and um, in deny, I mean, and I, I'll say that how I internalized it was, I, I very, I won't say, I, I was an active participant in denying my heritage. Right. You know, and that it's so easy to do. And
0: you want to fit in. You, you want to be like everybody in. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: You don't even. I mean, I didn't even hang out with other Vietnamese kids. There were a few. I didn't. I didn't hang out with them. And and it. You know, it sort. It bleeds in. If you if you allow it, it'll. It's very pervasive, and it'll bleed in well into your adulthood. Um, and uh, I th- I think that it was hard because. When you're, you know, I still grew up in a house that was very proud to be Vietnamese, but at the same time, I would see this deference once everyone left the house, and I would see the way my parents were treated. I would, I would, because I was obviously, because I was born in Virginia. I the nuances of language, the nuances mm-hmm. of condescension and racism that they wouldn't. They wouldn't even know to pick up you on it. you. You absorb up. all of it. Right, you, that, you th- knew
1: that, it was happening. That drove yeah. me crazy. Oh. You know, <laughs> yeah. to see, because you know, if you're Vietnamese, you're living in a Vietnamese community or Vietnamese household. We're not deferential to each other. <laughs>
2: right. But then, totally. then, then they
1: they step out of their own community. Yeah. And then they have to defer. Yeah,
2: yeah. And
1: and, and to white people yeah. for good reason, but it's still so. I felt it was like demeaning mm. on yeah. some level.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. really. It, It, uh, it, yeah, it it, it has such an impact, and I would see my dad um, say, "It's just sir, every, everyone, sir,
0: everyone, yeah." Mm -hmm. But um,
3: and you know the, um, well, we can get into this later. But the ideas of what happens to a Vietnamese man in a society that's not accepting of him in a in a a sort of an emasculating society, how that, how he brings that home, it was really particular
0: right right where he can actually make himself feel like yeah. the the man that he's supposed to be at right. home that he right. doesn't get to be right. outside yeah. is that what drew you to music
3: um uh it's similar to what you're saying uh utter loneliness <laughs> uh,
1: man
0: loneliness yeah. is a really yeah. good yeah.
3: drug i mean if yeah. i could bottle that <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah you couldn't sell it to anybody though That's
3: you'd <laughs> <right. I> <laughs> have to frame it in a songwriting workshop yeah. um, uh, loneliness um it was a really turbulent home that I grew up in mm. and and so it w- it was something that I could do in you know alone and uh, it was definitely a form of escape
0: mm. I wonder if like as your experience as a songwriter, how much of that um taps into these emotions that are obviously so raw for you. I mean, like, that's the thing about your music is like, and your performances, you know? I mean, what everybody says when they see you is, it, it, it's such a, an experience to, to see you and to hear you sing. I mean, there's, the, the, the emotion is so obvious. What are you tapping into? or Is, is this where it comes from?
3: think thanks for saying that. I think it's a dysfunction. I think it's because <laughs> yeah. I haven't figured out enough of my shit, <laughs> and I, I am like pretty intermittently going to therapy, and I can never just consistently go. And because of my touring yeah. schedule, I can always blame touring. But I, it's there's it's a time capsule. It's like sort of um, embedded in this amber, and it can't get out. And I don't know. Mm. I keep. And I've been doing this for a long time now, like maybe 13, 14 years. And it won't go anywhere. And I don't, I just have, it feels like I have this like inexhaustible well of rage or sadness or whatever it is. There's there's pain there. I don't think it's healthy. I would, (laughs) you know, I would love to figure it out. But it comes out on stage. It does, yeah. Yeah.
0: So maybe that's your therapy.
3: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, well, that's cheaper, so that's nice. So,
0: yeah. um, you actually get paid for it instead of actually right. having to pay other people. <laughs> I'm curious, um, what, what's been the response of your family to this path that you carved for yourself? You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about, like, having to negotiate, you know, oh, immigrant yeah. parents yeah, and, yeah. you know, basically lie. I mean, lie. I think mm-hmm. that's the best way to mm-hmm. put it. Um, is that something that you experience as well?
2: Oh, yeah,
3: I've definitely lied. But also with my... So my mom has been um, incredibly supportive. Your mom is awesome. She's (laughs) such a gem. If you all see her in this documentary that um, only, I think, like four people have seen (laughs) Um, it. Yeah, I'll send it to you. And then my mom maybe has seen it. Uh, She's incredible. And, you know, I'm so... And it's similar to to Veuth's parents, the, the, that kind of sacrifice. She ran a laundromat. So I grew up working in a laundromat in Virginia. And there was a wash, dry, and fold service, and there was also machine washers, and there was dry cleaning. Um, and she worked, you know, it's, it's the typical work week, which is about one million. 90
0: hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And
3: And I always... You know, and my brother and I always served as the translators growing up, and there was always this tension, and, you know, and I was such an asshole because I always was so, I was embarrassed by her English, and I never wanted her to come to parent-teacher conferences. Mm. I never, I, it it took a long time until I realized, I mean, what, how could, I couldn't go to another country and do shit, you know, I yeah. couldn't, what could I do? I can I
0: barely c- speak English. That's true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
3: like, I, I can barely get in the lift. I don't <laughs> know. Um, but it was so amazing to see her in Vietnam, even though it was so intense for her to come, to go back. I had never been, and this was her first time back in 43 years. And she had worked for the South Vietnamese Embassy when, mm-hmm. when she was in Vietnam. And, and actually at the fall of Saigon, she was stationed in Laos, so she fled from Laos because she yeah. was tipped off that um the the communist government was coming in to look for South Vietnamese uh representatives and and it took seventeen tries to get her to come and um and but then to see her there, and the way she there was just this dimension of her that I had never seen before, and it was so beautiful and it was she's you know joking around. She's leading us. We have no idea where we're going. I can't, I can speak Vietnamese, but I can't read anything. Or it'd take me about five hours right. to figure out what that, the accent, like what the tone is. I don't. And um, to see her negotiate just haggling and ordering at the restaurant. Just all these simple things that we never got to experience um, in the U.S. with her.
0: She was in her own she element. She was
3: in her own yeah. element. It was remarkable. And I don't think she'll she'll go again. I think that was... Enough for her. By the way,
0: I just wanna say, I love the fact that all three of us, like later in life, have realized what superheroes our parents actually were. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, I think that's a very common Mm
2: -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, I was thinking, one of my favorite parts of um, The Sympathizer is there's this moment where the protagonist has this liberal arts uh, college professor, Mm -hmm. like a douchey kind of guy, who uh, reads him this Kipling line, right? This famous Kipling line that we've all read at some point in our you know, high school English literature classes. East is East, West is West, and? Never the twain shall meet. Never the twain shall meet, right? Um, which is such utter bullshit, right? I mean, it's like, well, then what am I? Mm. Like, what I am the East and the West mm. meeting So what the fuck are you talking about, Rudyard Kipling? Um, But the professor has um, the protagonist do something really bizarre, which I I just love. He has him take a piece of paper Mm -hmm. and fold it in half. Mm -hmm. And on one side he writes Orient and on one side he writes Occident. And he basically says, I want you to kind of dissect your personality and categorize it. Like what part of you comes from the Orient and what part of you comes from the Occident. And the whole point of this is to show the sort of the dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. The conflict between the two. So uh, people don't know this, but before we came on this taping, I asked you guys to do that very same thing. I did it too. Mm -hmm. Take a piece of paper, write Orient on one side, Occident on the other, and then basically analyze yourself according to those totally constructed uh, categories. I did it, you guys did it, you did it. Let's share it with everyone, shall we? All right, I got mine right here. Okay, I'll go first. You go first, I'll I'll, I'll break the seal, I'll go first. So, I'm gonna say, these are the things about me uh, that come from the Orient, Mm -hmm. and these are the things about me that come from the Occident, okay? So, all right, Orient. My refusal to talk about money, you know what I mean? Like I just, I don't don't want to talk about money. I just don't want to have any conversation that involves money at all. My wife negotiates everything. I will literally pay a person anything that they ask just so I don't have to talk about money. Occident, my inability to think about anything except money. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's all I think about. Orient. Uh, this thing that I have where I'm just convinced that everything is my fault. Do you know what I mean? Like, just whatever it is, it's, it's my fault. I'm sure it is my fault. Occident, uh, the refusal to apologize for anything. You know what I mean? Like, why would I say I'm sorry, I'm American, I'm not sorry for anything. Orient, uh, I don't know if this is true for you guys, this might just be a Middle Eastern thing but I am superstitious as fuck. Like, I am the most superstitious person. I knock on wood for any reason at all. Like, I'll never say anything good out loud. Because if you say it out loud, you know, some, like, the the spirits will hear. Occident, my utter certainty that nothing bad will ever happen to me, ever. (laughs) That I will live forever. Orient. Uh, sort of this like uh, anxiety that I have that unless I have at minimum four jobs that I'm, not, I'm doing it wrong, do you know what I mean? Like I got at least four jobs, mm-hmm. minimum four jobs. Occident, um, how many Netflix episodes can I binge if I don't leave my house for a week? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, my, that's my Occidental thought. And then finally, uh, Orient, and talking about moms, this is like a this is a mom thing that I think you guys will will appreciate. Um, Orient this kind of weight, this burden that I carry, which is like all about whether my mother is actually happy, which is impossible, yeah. by the way. Nothing would make my mother happy ever, but like this constant burden that it's like my responsibility to make sure that she's happy. Occident. How quickly can I put her in an old folks' home? Like, that's, like, is that a thing that I can do? Because like, apparently like, that's a thing, Like Americans yeah. do that. They, they just shovel off mm-hmm. old people into homes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's mine. Well, I have
1: one question about the money thing. Because with money, it seems to me like Vietnamese people want to talk about money all the time. Oh, really? Okay, That's, yeah, that's, that's definitely a Middle Eastern thing, like okay. we all,
0: I don't So know, we have different like, kinds of
1: Orientals uh, yeah. here. Right. Yeah. We but like when to you pre- go to Vietnam, like, people always say, "What? How much money do you make? Or how much does that cost?" I'm like,
0: What? I, <laughs> yeah. I, should I tell the truth?
1: Should I lie? We
0: so like, like, per, like especially Persians. We have this thing where like we like to pretend that mm. money doesn't matter. We have this uh, uh, for for people who don't know this like cultural thing called tarof, which oh. is basically like yeah. There's a groan in the audience <laughs> from somebody who's experienced tarof. Yeah, uh, it's best understood as insincere deference, mm. but it's like. <laughs> This thing that Persians do all the time, where like they will insist on you know paying for everything, or if like don't for God's sakes never ever uh, um, sort of praise a, a, a Persian for something that they're wearing, you know, don't ever be like, well that's a nice watch, because you know what a Persian will say. This watch? That's a really it's nice your,
1: watch. It's your this is your that's watch. A, that's a really nice this is, watch. This
0: is my this is your watch. It's, I can't okay, I can't uh, even oh. this
3: is a nice show. Watch
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the American side kicks in. I like yours. <laughs> this is a nice show. Yeah.
0: You got a nice show. One here. Vietnamese nice
1: way camera. that's similar is that Vietnamese people will always invite you over. Oh, it's been so great seeing you. Come over anytime. But they don't mean, they don't mean it. it. They don't mean, mean forbid, it. They don't mean it. God forbid you all. actually accept <laughs> the invitation. I've never accepted the invitation. But they will always say, come on over. Anytime. All right, let's hear let's hear your or orient and occident all right and by the way i have to say that this is actually not my idea i had read the writer frank chin and and i, I can't remember where i read this but he said and he was a student at berkeley in the 60s and he went to the iowa uh, writers program like mm. you did but he, as an undergraduate he said this is what one of his teachers made him do divide himself you know put a, a line down east and west or orient and, occident an and write down yeah and write down his two opposing <laughs> characteristics okay oriental I make my son play classical piano. Of course you do. He's six years old. Yeah, okay. he's, um, yeah. Occidental, I let, my son, I let my son watch videos on an iPad. Okay. <laughs> right. Oriental, I know how to use chopsticks. Occidental, I prefer to use a fork. I mean, who doesn't? It's right. so much easier. It's, it's actually shocking, but it's true. Oriental, I wash my plastic sandwich bags and reuse them.
2: <laughs> I literally, I literally <laughs> have that, <laughs> that, Yeah, I gotta come up with another yeah. like
1: We are the original mean yeah. people. Yeah. We don't waste anything. I Occidental, I throw away my plastic bags. Okay. Uh, oriental, I usually take off my shoes when I enter my house. Occidental. Sometimes I'm lazy and I wear my shoes into my house. So like if you your go mom, out of the. I mean, it well, like, it it's just like just you like, like... go into the garage and then you forget <laughs> something, and you have laced up shoes. What are you, you going to take off your shoes just to go back into the house to get your iPhone or your keys or whatever it is? No, you Once I, w-
0: I wore my shoes uh, in the house and my mom said, "Are you an animal?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. But- Animals don't wear shoes, but all right, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. All right, <laughs> all right, Tal, it's yours.
3: Okay. Well, I might prove your point that it's hard to do this and almost um, unrealistic to ask someone to do this because I, I tried to correlate them, as you can see, it's scattered. The one good one I had was a plastic bag. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, from the Orient. Um, my mind being blown when I learned that people let their cats sleep on their pillows. <laughs> right? Oh. I don't have, I, I don't <laughs> have like an Occidental side. Of
0: that, there's that. no like, Occidental no side.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, I've seen a cat video. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, packing, uh, from the Orient, uh, packing food wherever I go mm-hmm. and refusing to buy food out. And then um, Occidental is like, sometimes in and out burger is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and I love french fries, so I'm gonna, eat, I'm gonna buy those. Because it's really such a pain in the ass to deep fry stuff at home. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not gonna do that. Um, oh, uh, when I... <laughs> this is a joke, I'm an incredible driver. <laughs> uh, and then I had this is Occidental. Now we're going to, I'm sorry, it's scattered. Uh, the Occidental. Um I now and now I put dry goods in mason jars.
2: <laughs> but when I was young I would go
3: to uh, a white person house and I would look and they I, you know it was a sleepover or something and I would be there we'd have in the morning there would be cereal and then I would be like, I don't know where are all the cereal boxes and they all had been Emptied from the boxes into
1: jars. So,
0: yeah. That's
3: true. And
1: I do that, that now too. Keeps
0: right. in yeah. before,
2: I do that too, but, but I also I
0: have like, like, like an extremely white wife.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like
0: like translucently
3: white. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Uh, okay, and then. Um, uh, oh, okay. I don't know how many were on, but I have just a couple more. When I was in school I studied sociology and I had this, I've developed this like immediate af- affinity for Edward Said and mm. Orientalism, the, the, those ideas. Occidental Said, I, I always wanna pronounce it, Edward Said.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay, that's all. That
1: was a good one. Thanks. That was actually, when I
3: first encountered Edward Said in college, that was my
1: reaction.
2: Right? Edward Said? <laughs> what is that? I I've never heard, heard, heard that. What said you say? <laughs> I
1: don't know. Well.
0: Part of the treat of having you here, Tao, is that we get to actually hear you perform. You're gonna play a song called Age of Ice? I am, yes. All right. We'd love to hear it. Everybody, Tao Wen. All
2: right. When <clears throat> <clears throat> return from the age of ice I suppose I would survive I remember you with a feeling or two The stone I invented To coat my hands and face I was made of machine And gasoline For the full i just a taste No, no, I was a boy To break such bounds Slow. Bye. That was awesome, that was amazing. That was amazing.
1: Amazing. amazing. A choice for a musical guest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, when you asked me, uh, do you have any ideas for a musical guest? And my first thought was Tao. And then you said Tao, and I was like, as Oh, yeah. such
0: a, such synergy. Yeah. Okay. So one of uh, the traditions of Rough Draft is we do this thing that we call Five Questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is kind of a rapid fire thing. Mm-hmm. All right. You don't have to think mm-hmm. about it too much, mm-hmm. but you know, feel free to answer as as you will. Um, all right. Here we go. Number one, what's your favorite book?
1: That's a really hard question. It's an impossible question. But my favorite recent book is Paul Beatty's The Sellout. I don't know it. You don't know Paul Beatty's The Sellout? I am so disappointed in you. Oh my God. It won the the Booker Prize. I think he was like the first American to win the Booker Prize. And uh, Paul and I have met a couple of times and and had long conversations. I think we are so simpatico. And when I read The the Sellout, I knew why, because The Sellout is a satire about contemporary America set in Los Angeles, about a a black guy who owns a slave, you know? So it's completely (laughs) ludicrous and completely hilarious. And so, yeah, read it, you'll love it.
0: But no squid fucking.
1: I have outdone Paul in that regard. Okay, you you win that, yeah.
0: Number two, what's your writing process? Tell us about your writing process.
1: I mean, ideally my writing process as I, in The Sympathizer is to, to get up right in the morning, go mm-hmm. have lunch with Squid, for example, and then go <laughs> run for an hour, and that's part of the, the, where the creative juices come from. Now I have a son, life is much more complicated, right. but still try to get three to four hours of writing done a day.
0: So you go by hours, not word count?
1: uh, whatever makes me feel better yeah. on a given day. you know I've never understood people who do
0: word count because like yeah. if your' if your goal is 350 words, I can write 350
1: words. Well, the thing is, it's like, shit, It's, shit. it's yeah. shit. but you process the shit. I don't know how this metaphor works, but you know, it gets better. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of the word count only works for a certain amount. You've got to get the words out, and then you revise. So I don't know how you count the revisions, but three or four hours seems to work. Yeah. Uh, I just interviewed Water Mosley yesterday. The dude has 57 books. His writing process, he says, <laughs> three hours a day, 360 days a year. That leads to two or three I, books I a year. I don't even know what that's
0: like. Uh, number three, if you weren't a writer, what would you be?
1: Well, I am a professor, I guess that's my other Mm -hmm. day job. And if I wasn't a professor, I'd be a lawyer. And if I wasn't a lawyer, I'd be a priest. All of which would make your mom very happy. The priest would have been best. uh, What's the worst writing advice you've ever gotten? Uh, When we were shopping The Sympathizer, uh, there was a very famous editor who could give six-figure advances and he had an hour-long conversation with me. And one of his major suggestions with The Sympathizer was, that he felt that my narrator needed to have a relationship with somebody. And a love story. He that was, was like, I need a love story That here. was the implication, because he had edited another book that won the Pulitzer Prize that was kind of similar to mine that featured a love story. And I thought, that's not... I was yeah. like, he asked me, who do you think your, rela- your narrator is having a relationship with? And I thought, himself. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the right answer to give. Yeah. And so I didn't take his advice. He didn't buy my book. And the shocking thing, as I found out later, was that he could give seven-figure advances, because his <gasps> last act as an editor was to give a new writer a million-dollar advance. And then he got fired. No, he quit. <laughs> um...
0: And last but not least, what's the best writing advice that you can give to a young writer or struggling writer, emerging writer, somebody who's getting their career off the ground?
1: Eventually, what I think every writer needs to be able to do is to be able to write just for themselves. Mm. It's actually kind of hard to do that. When you're a kid, you can do that. You don't care. Then you're an adult. You can start to worry about your rent, your prestige. Can you sell the book, et cetera? You start to worry about what other people think. About your book or your story. Finally, being able to write for yourself is being able to write authentically and honestly, courageously. It's really hard to do. Every writer needs to be able to get to that point. Viet win,
0: everyone. Thanks, Reza. Thank you so much. You. Okay, so Viet and, and uh, Tao are going to switch seats, and I'm going to do that whole thing <laughs> over again. Okay, Tao. Five questions. You ready? Yes. What is your favorite book?
3: Uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Oh yeah, just a good one.
0: Powerful, powerful book. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your writing process. How do you write a song? Like, what's that? What, what's involved in, in in putting a song together yeah. for you?
3: Um, find out what the deadline is. Yeah. No, right. Step uh, one. Wait. <laughs> and then freak
0: Pre- the fuck out. Yeah, procrastinate, then, yeah, freak out. Procrastinate. Uh-huh. I
3: actually I love looking I there's a book that, a most recent collection of writers' routines. I actually love reading about writers oh. routines and then trying to every day just assume a different writer identity and like with, <laughs> right. and I'm like, oh well Mirakami wakes up at four and runs seven miles. That's so what like, I'm gonna
2: do. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh so I just think about doing it, I don't do it. And uh <laughs> and then I but recently um Similar to it, uh, that I, I try to, to work three or four hours a day mm. in the morning because I've found that past noon it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you weren't a songwriter, what would you be?
3: I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. I, wanted to, I, want, I would be a short story writer. Um, and then I would supplement that with growing my own produce and catering small dinners.
2: Wow,
0: that's super yeah. specific. I Thank love you. that. I've
3: been thinking about it because I'm really <laughs> tired of touring. So.
0: What's the worst um, writing advice that you've ever gotten?
3: Um, read this book about songwriting. <laughs> oh <my> God, a <laughs> book about songwriting? Yeah. I can't even imagine yeah. what that would be like. I, I can't either because I Is didn't Is it just like it. a
0: rhyming dictionary? It was
3: like something out of, <laughs> the, yeah, it, it's something out of Barnes & Noble or it's, you know, industry buzzwords or something Uh
0: and what's the best advice that you can give to a songwriter who's just kind of starting out
3: trust that you have good ideas Mm -hmm. and then um once you get to a point where if you're lucky enough for people to pay to see you remember that they pay to see you
0: that's very good thanks Tao in everyone Thank you so much to my guests on this episode of Rough Draft, Viet Tan Wen. You could, of course, follow him on his socials. That's at Viet, V-I-E-T underscore T underscore Nguyen, N-G-U-Y-E-N. Thank you also to our special musical guest, Tao Nguyen. Uh, you can follow her at Tao Get Stay Down. That's at T-H-A-O Get Stay Down, and of course you can listen to Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you get your music. Rough Draft is a topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan, executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanitry, Anna Holmes, and Gina Constantinakos, with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton, with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter, at Rough Draft Reza, on Facebook at Rough Draft with Reza Adlin, or you can email us, at roughdraftpodcast at topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com slash rdpodcast. If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing and you can also share your subscription between up to six family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Go to apple.com topic to start your seven-day free trial now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rough Draft.
2: Hey,
3: it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.